0: Tonight on Farage, no jab, no job. That's what 1.2 million NHS workers are about to be told. We go back into the English Channel. Madness today, huge numbers arriving, lifeboats still out searching for migrant boats in the pitch black. We'll go to America, where, as I predicted on this show for the last two evenings, the Republicans have won the governorship of the state of Virginia. And joining me on Talking Pines, musical impresario Pete Waterman. Last week, the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, said he was leaning towards vaccinations being compulsory for all NHS staff. And I said to you, when this government says it's leaning towards doing something authoritarian, it almost certainly means that they are going to do it. And today, it is generally widely accepted across all forms of media that from April, everybody that works for the National Health Service will have to be double vaccinated. Now... I did make some points last week about this. The first being, of course, that half of NHS staff don't interact with patients but work in offices. And the other point that bothered me about it was, and whilst I'm for having the vaccine myself, absolutely. But whether you've had the vaccine or not had had the vaccine, both of you can still carry the virus and transmit it onto anybody else. Surely the point of the vaccine is that it protects you from getting seriously ill far more than it protects anybody else around you. Now, 100,000 staff at the NHS have as yet not had the vaccine, and we do, from the care home sector, have an example of this already. This law has come in already, that you have to be double vaccinated to work in the care home sector. 13,000 people have just simply left the care home industry um, at a time when the industry is trying to recruit and an estimated, according to the Telegraph, an estimated 63,000 people uh, just haven't had the jabs. So, given all of that, does it make sense? Is no jab, no job right? Let me know what you think, please. GBViews at gbnews.uk or tweet at gbnews. Well, joining me to go through this and think about some of the legalities of what's going on. Is Beverly Sunderland, Managing Director at Crossland Employment Solicitors. Beverly, good evening and welcome to GB News.
1: Good evening, Nigel. Thank you for inviting me on.
0: Now, just on the legal side of this to begin with, is there any precedent in employment law in this country for private companies or the state insisting that their staff fulfil certain medical requirements, including? having vaccines?
1: It's a fairly wide question. I'm not aware of any. I have to say that um, it has been bandied about that surgeons, it's compulsory that they should have vaccinations against hepatitis. But actually, I don't believe that it's actually mandatory. I think it is recommended. So in answer to your question, I'm certainly not aware of any. But now a law has been passed, and certainly in relation to care home staff, and as you have said, most likely coming in respect of NHS staff, and that's something of a game changer.
0: And does the employee have any rights in this situation, or do they simply have to comply or lose their job?
1: Well, one of the fair reasons for dismissing an employee is if it is unlawful to continue to employ them. Now, if... They are working in a care home. They are a care assistant. They can't do anything else. There isn't another job for them. The employer has really got no option. They are going to have to terminate their employment. Now, in the olden days, they might have gone to Europe and complained that the laws had been implemented and that they were contrary, say, to EU directives on discrimination. Now, their only hope would be to go to the European Convention on Human Rights, which, of course, we are still part of, and complain that it is contrary, particularly to Article 9, perhaps freedom of thought and um, uh, conscience and religion. So really, that's their only option.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the whole point of Brexit, I guess, Beverly, is that we make our own laws, whether they're good laws or bad laws, but we make our own laws. And in a sense, you back that up. So it seems to me with the care sector that what was done was the attempt. And there are whatever it is 10, 12, 15% of the country who just do not want to take this vaccine. Some of them don't want to take any vaccines. And it's unlikely that that core of people are gonna change their mind even if they're bullied because the attempt to bully people in the care home sector simply hasn't worked, has it?
1: Well, let me just take you back a step. I don't think I accept the word bully, and picking up on your introduction to this particular um, topic. And you were saying, well, you can still pass it on, but there is now Public Health England research which shows that even after a first jab, you are between 38 and 45% less likely to pass it on to someone else. So it's got to be a balance of risk. When we've had 14,000 people die in our care homes, we have to do all we reasonably can in my personal belief, to make sure that um, our our elderly are protected.
0: I I understand the point you're making. It was Boris Johnson, in fact, the Prime Minister last week, that said having the jab doesn't mean you can't catch Covid, doesn't mean you can't pass it on. But if there is a substantially reduced risk of that, well, then I'm pleased to hear it. The reason I use the word bully, Beverly, is, you know, if I say to you, do as I say, I believe this is right, or you will lose your job. I, I don't think bullying is a an inappropriate use of a, of, of a word, do you?
1: Well, I think that if you were to say that without it being against a backdrop of a, yeah, a global pandemic with millions dying, with hard statistics which now show that actually you reduce the risk if people are vaccinated, then I, I think, put in that light, it is a different question, really, isn't it? Because what what government are saying, and don't get me wrong, I don't agree with everything that the government says, but yep. I do agree with this particular law because if was, this was my mother or my father in a care home, I would want to know that absolutely everything had been done to stop the risk. They're not going to stop it completely. So I, I don't think that you can look at it in isolation.
0: No, nope. OK, that's a very, very fair point. Beverly Sunderland, thank you for coming on. And making it well let's go from the legal side of this argument to the front lines i'm joined now by Tony Stein, Chief Executive of Healthcare Management Solutions, which operates around about seventy care homes across the UK. Tony, good evening, and thank you for joining me.
2: Good evening, Nigel. Thanks for inviting me so
0: I'm fascinated by this. you know everyone's told it's the law it's coming into effect, and still people either leave the industry, your industry or simply refuse to get the vaccine. I mean, it hasn't really worked, has it? This government ploy hasn't really worked. And my concern is, with the National Health Service, we'll finish up by April, short of nurses, short of staff.
2: Um, well, okay, I, I think we need to, to go back a step. I mean, COVID's been a journey for us all. We've learned a lot throughout the last two years. Um, the evidence and the information available has changed. Um, we took a view quite early on that we would have preferred for us not to have had a mandatory uh, vaccination policy for existing workers. Um, we believe that the individuals had the right to choose. Um, we adopted a policy of signposting and educating and so on. Um, So to try and encourage people to look at the right information from the right sources and make their own reasoned decision. You know, our our workers aren't stupid. They're very intelligent people. Um, They're quite capable of assessing risk. And we we believed at the time that they would choose probably to go down the route of taking the vaccination. And before it was even mandated, we'd achieved somewhere in the region of 90 percent vaccination amongst our care home staff group. Um, so we had a very, very high uh, rate of take up anyway. And when the evidence came out that actually, uh, if you were double vaccinated, you were uh, less likely to be transmitting the disease, less likely, not it wasn't possible, but you were going to be less likely to transmit it, then actually um, we, we, we hoped that everybody would take it up. We have around about 2,000 staff in our English care homes and only twenty five three of those by the 11th of November won't be double vaccinated.
0: Okay, that's a very small percentage. Um, And as far as those 23 are concerned, you simply can't use them anymore?
2: No, Um, unfortunately not. Um, Again, I think when you get down to levels like that, our view would have been that we could have taken alternative actions such as uh, maybe getting them to continue to wear PPE and continue to test them and so on to... To, to yep. protect our yep. residents, I yep. think the issue, though Nigel, is is a bit of a a bit of a red herring, and the issue really is that this, on its own, is not the problem for us. We've had a staffing problem in the care sector for decades. I've been in this business for twenty years now um, running care homes, and we've always had problems recruiting staff. And I think it it it's got its <laughs> roots in in a, a number of things, but the primary one is that actually working in care is is misconceived as a um a sort of dead-end job low-paid job unvalued not valued um, by society and i think we we failed our children over the last two decades three decades by not teaching them the true value of vocations you know i think these people we were we were clapping on our front doorsteps if you remember banging pans because of the the incredible work that these people were doing and yet you know they're still effectively a minimum wage job, and that shouldn't happen. And, and, you know, I think this is the root of it. This is just one issue that's added to a lot of others. It's not the root of the problem.
0: No, and, of course, the root of the care home uh, disasters that happened in some cases was, of course, the hospitals being emptied, insufficient checks being done. On balance, Tony, people have left the sector, but on balance, do you think the law is the right law?
2: I think it... Possibly is. I mean, as I said, I'd have preferred not to do it. We're, we're there now. Um, it will have an impact. Um, we just have to live with it. But I think what we need to do as a society is we need to refocus away from this onto some of the core issues, start to value our carers, pay them the right wage, and, and you know, we could move on and maybe help to fix that staffing crisis that we're all about to, to hit.
0: Tony Stein, thank you very much indeed. Well, you've heard the arguments, the legal arguments, the practical arguments. I still feel very uncomfortable with a society that divides people up into the jabbed and the jabbed-nots, but that's where we are. Last night, I reported as a lead story that the English Channel was busy, that we've gone through, considerably through, the 20,000 mark of people who've arrived, crossing illegally from France so far this year. I also said that the rest of mainstream media was completely obsessed with COP26 and would barely cover the story. Well, I wasn't disappointed... This morning's Guardian, nothing. This morning's Mirror, nothing. This morning's Express, nothing. This morning's Times, nothing. This morning's Mail, a piece on page 21. This morning's Sun, a tiny piece on the bottom of page 2. This morning's Telegraph, a slightly bigger piece on page 2. Not a single photograph in any one of our main national newspapers. Precious little coverage elsewhere. I also said to you last night that today would be even busier. I said four to 500 yesterday. The official number was 454, I think. Today, well, today is going to be even more. And joining me in the studio is Mark White, GB News, Home Affairs and Security Editor. Mark, I'm hearing that uh, some of the RNLI lifeboats, one in particular, has been on the go since 2 o'clock this morning, and it's still out.
3: Yeah, that just shows you how bad it is. 2am this morning, the Dungeness lifeboat was called out to intercept a boat-carrying migrants. Now, just in the last hour, it's been called out again to intercept another boat... 35 migrants on board. you can see here, this is one of the lifeboats coming into Dover earlier today, absolutely packed out with people on board, Nigel. And not just them, the Border Force vessels, various vessels have been coming in and out today. Uh, Six times now, we believe, at least, the Dungeness lifeboat has been out. Again, the same for the Dover lifeboat. It is also out this evening to a rescue, which is taking place off St Margaret's Bay, about 10 miles offshore. 30 people on that particular boat. And this is
0: in pitch black?
3: Pitch black, and the conditions are getting worse. And
0: deteriorating weather, yeah.
3: The Coast Guard helicopter has been called out to the incident uh, off Hastings. We're told about 10 miles off Hastings that the Dungeness lifeboat is currently involved in. There are reported to be some women and children on board that vessel, 35, we believe. But... Uh, again, you, you mentioned the figure there, well over 450 yesterday. Mm. It is now looking like uh, we will double that with today. Wow. Uh, I'm being told that over 800 migrants have been intercepted in incidents in the British side of the Channel throughout the day in 30 separate incidents, we believe, involving 30 separate small boats. <laughs> you know, we're now in the winter months and they're still coming in very significant... Numbers like this in very potentially dangerous weather conditions.
0: Well, three there were three lost last week, of course, weren't there? Mark, you've worked in media longer than me. I'm a relatively new boy at all of this. Why is it that these people and competitor channels don't want to cover this story?
3: Uh, I I think you're right. There has been uh, an enthusiasm to cover COP26. I understand, and and they've covered it wall to wall. Yeah. uh, Sometimes that means resources are channelled away in a different direction, and when something like this happens, they're not able to respond as they might like, or they're a bit late to the game. I can say that I've been speaking to one or two people that we uh, speak to on a regular basis down in Dover, and they have been contacted actually by pretty much all of the media uh, in the past uh, 12 hours, right. asking if they can get hold of any of the footage. Well, if ginger- so they are late to the party, but okay. they are waking up. Well, if up we've to- helped
0: here on GB News to ginger them up and start reporting <laughs> that, that it's no bad thing. And Mark, I mean, I I got the res- I got the re- the, the, the re- response last night from Dan O'Mani, the clandestine channel threat commander. These journeys are illegal, dangerous, and unnecessary, and facilitated by violent criminal gangs profiting from misery. It's not even worth reading out. Uh, it's the same rubbish all the time. Is there anything coming from Priti Patel's office on this?
3: You know, it's difficult to see how they can really get a proper grip of this unless you actually try to tackle it, perhaps uh, at its source, in terms of the, the people trafficking operation further upstream, those who are buying the boats yep. from, as we understand it, uh, operations in Turkey uh, and also and that, in so, South so
0: Africa. And we think in Turkey is where, the, is where the new big boats are being manufactured.
3: These 11 metres, well, that's 35 feet, is it something it like is, that? Yeah. yeah. Um, so they can, I think they've held, the record is 86 yeah. people pulled off the yeah. channel yeah. on one of these boats. Uh, already, so the, they're pretty big. They're not the biggest. Uh, we've seen some of them in the Mediterranean, but talk that some of those may be prepared as well to start. This is the intelligence. The,
0: the, the intelligence we've picked up, isn't yeah. it, that actually next year there'll be boats capable of carrying up to two hundred at a time.
3: That's right, Um, the ones that you've seen crossing the Aegean. yeah, Uh, Very big boats indeed. But even these 11-metre-long boats can carry an awful lot of people and they always pack them out to the extent that they are very unseaworthy coming across. Uh, They're getting the motors from, as we understand, South Africa. Uh, They've run out of 40-horsepower motors and are going for 30-horsepower motors now instead. That's the trade they're doing. You would think that they could... Look at the manufacturers of these engines and these boats. Try to find out who the sudden upsurge in customer Mm. interest is coming from. Particularly
0: in November. (laughs) I mean, people buy outboards in in May and June, but... but, And
3: then follow intelligence leads back to who the organised criminal gangs are,
0: you would think. We're a long way from it, Mark. Thank you very much indeed. In a moment, we'll cross to the other side of the pond to America, where not only... Not only have the Republicans won the governorship of Virginia with a massive swing, but actually, right across America, something very interesting happened yesterday. A backlash. Some are calling it a woke No jab, no job. That's the case now by law in the care sector, and it will be, we're told, in the NHS by April of next year. I'm asking you, is that right? Is it reasonable? And it has led to shortages in the care sector. Arn on Twitter says it doesn't make sense with a staffing shortage and when there is a natural immunity. Someone on Twitter says no jab, no job makes perfect sense. If you want a Chinese-style social credit system, one viewer says, the jabs are every bit as infectious, so pose no less threat to others, rendering this policy indefensible. We were told by Beverly, the lawyer, that there is evidence, uh, and indeed, it was backed up too by Mark, that there is evidence that if you have the jab, you're less likely to pass it on, but I need to be fully convinced of that too. Johnny says, if you're not vaxxed, you are only a greater risk to yourself. Your choice or at least it should be. Well, that's rather where I come from, I have to say, on this. Alex says, I would only be happy for my family members to remain in a care home if the staff had been jabbed. And, yes, I'm guessing a lot of people would say that. Now, America has an endless series of elections. It is a very, very democratic country. You know, even at local government level, a lot of positions that here a civil servant would hold are up for election. The Americans have their chance. And for the last two nights, I've been telling you about this very important race for the governorship of Virginia. I said it looked like Biden's poll ratings were tanking. Kamala Harris's ratings have tanked even further. Um, but actually, I think what happened last night in America was much bigger than just Virginia. And well, I'm very pleased to say that joining me on this subject from across the other side of the pond is Scott Rasmussen, American public opinion pollster and political analyst. Scott, good evening or good afternoon to you. Well, good evening to you and thank you for having me. No, not one little bit. Now, obviously, you know, I follow the numbers that you produce all the time with huge interest. Uh, Let's start with Virginia, because that's the one that's making the news on this side of the pond. Um, What interests me is particularly in northern Virginia, which is, you know, pretty well off, pretty affluent... Uh, generally uh, not people that like Trump's Republican Party very much. And yet, quite a few of them switched their votes yesterday, didn't they?
4: They did. And, and I think one part of it is it's no longer Donald Trump's party in the minds of some of those voters. Uh, it turns out that about 71% of youngkin voters said it is quite possible to support Donald Trump's policies without supporting the former president. But on top of that, there were a whole range of issues. You already mentioned Biden's poll numbers were very bad. That dragged the party down somewhat. Uh, But Terry McAuliffe made the ultimate debate gaffe when he said parents
0: shouldn't be telling schools what to teach their children. That riled up a lot of people. Yeah, education did seem to be a big factor um, in Virginia. And in a moment, we'll talk about more broadly across America. But there is, I mean, some people are calling this woke clash. Is this a fight back against critical race theory? Is this parents just saying, look, we don't want our kids to be taught like this?
4: Well, I wouldn't use the term woke lash, And the reason I wouldn't use that is because most of the people who would be opposed to the woke ideology don't know what that term means. That's a term used by the political elite. However, uh, a lot of people on the political left in this country have been saying we should get rid of photo ID requirements. Eighty-one percent of voters in Virginia said, no, we should have that. Fifty-seven percent of Virginia voters said, if you're born a man, you should use the men's room. That's not where the woke ideology would take you. And we have issue after issue like that. And looking all across the United States, that elitist attitude, that sense of being out of touch, really cost the Democrats.
0: And more broadly across America... And I'm thinking about school board elections. You know, you're you're very lucky in America. You can vote for school boards. We don't get we don't get the chance here to do that. Um, right. We need a, we we need some reform here. But but looking at the results across America, how big a night was this for the Republican Party?
4: It is hard to overstate how big a night for it was. Let me give one example in southern New Jersey. Now, look, the Democrats won the governor's race in New Jersey, or at least it appears so, very closely. That should cause a, a more concern than actually losing the Virginia race. But in the southern part of the state, the president of the state Senate was defeated by a truck driver who spent $153 on his campaign. I mean, that's a <laughs> stunning result. Um, in Long Island, there were local county executive races that went the Republican way. Every judgeship that was voted on in Pennsylvania went the Republican way. This is a very serious issue. It's not one or two issues. You know, you were talking earlier tonight about getting jabbed and the mandates. Well, what we found in America is about a third of voters know someone who will get jabbed against their will, and those voters are not happy about it. I mean, think of it. You're talking about it yourself. Uh, If someone is forced to get a jab because they can't afford to give up their job, they are going to vote for the other side, and that's happening along with all these other
0: issues. Absolutely fascinating. And, Scott, the amazing thing is this. All this is happening, and Biden has only been sworn in as president for 10 months, uh, and it does feel a bit like he's losing authority. Scott, promise me you'll come back and keep us up to date with American politics, and thank you. I thank look you. forward to it. Thank you thank for coming you. On. Thank you. Well, that was really interesting, and Scott Rasmussen really is one of the most respected pollsters in the USA, and he's telling us, don't underestimate the scale of what happened across America yesterday. I love the idea of the truck driver (laughs) spending 150 bucks and winning a seat in the Senate in New Jersey. Now, in our Parliament today, Conservative Member of Parliament for North Shropshire, Owen Patterson, who had been found to have committed an egregious breach of lobbying rules, has avoided an immediate 30-day suspension after MPs voted for a government-backed proposal to overhaul their disciplinary processes. They chose not to back the Cross-Party Standards Committee's call for the ban last week after Parliament had ruled that he had repeatedly lobbied ministers and officials for two companies that, between them, paid him more than £100,000 a year. Instead, the House of Commons backed a Tory-led amendment calling for a review of his case after the party's MPs were ordered to support the bill. And Boris Johnson questioned whether the investigation into Mr Patterson was fair as his party was accused, of wallowing in sleaze. 250 people voted in favour, 232 against. Several Tories rebelled against their own whip. This case, on the face of it, is something the public hate. They don't like MPs with outside interests appearing to lobby for those interests. And that's perfectly understandable, because lots of that would take us back to the 1990s, to cash for questions, and all of those scandals that beset the Tory party during Major's last days as Prime Minister. In this case, Owen Patterson came on with me here on GB News last Sunday morning. It was the only broadcast media interview. It was an exclusive for GB News that he did with any of the broadcast media in this country. The nub of Owen's case, is that due process was not observed, that the witnesses he put forward were not called, that even he himself was not properly interviewed, um, and and that they basically said, you are guilty, found him guilty, and that proper process had not been observed. So today's judgment, today's judgment, doesn't mean to those who are cynical about this, he's got away with it, it means it will be looked at again. I was very much in two minds over all of this. We need to clean up our politics. Goodness me, don't some of the post-Prime Ministerial antics of David Cameron shout that to you loudly and clearly. But I also believe that ever since Magna Carta, we've stood up and defended people's right to a fair trial. Moving on. The National Museum of Scotland, this is my What the Farage moment, could rename a gallery as they consider dropping the term discovery deeming it to be an outdated term and to be inappropriate when used in relation to colonial exploration. The museum is considering renaming its discoveries gallery following work to decolonise its collection. The gallery's title, Discoveries, could be dropped. Well, I don't know. I mean, where will this all end? You can't just eradicate history. You can't just pretend that people weren't off discovering and doing things because they were. You may not approve of the way in which people lived centuries ago, but surely the job of a museum is to reflect accurately life as it was, not life as the modern-day curator would like it to be. And my final What the Farage of today, well, it's our old friends, Insulate Britain. Because a police officer was caught offering Insulate Britain protesters another ten minutes to a road in Birmingham, as no arrests were made. Video footage from the scene of a protest Tuesday morning in Birmingham showed the officer saying, just be careful, I don't want to put good people in a cell. Listen very carefully to this clip and you'll hear the policeman talking to the protesters. You've done
5: what you needed to do today. And
3: I'm happy to go on for like 10 minutes. But after that, you don't want to go on for another half hour because you're not going to do anything more than you've already proven. But I don't want to put good people in a cell. I've seen that on news. it's not good for anybody. So I'm asking you just to, if you're willing, just to work with them. Because like I said, if you've got the children's hospital, you've got people that are dying, kids that are dying, the therapies, surely you don't want them to be hurt by your actions when you're trying to, you know, raise awareness to a legitimate cause.
0: You can't be reasonable with unreasonable people. And all over the country we've seen how these people behave and we've even seen, haven't we, on this show, quotes from senior figures saying even if someone's life was at risk in an ambulance, they wouldn't stop their protests. And I frankly think that police officer is appeasing the wrong people. It does not work. And Insulate Britain have very little public support in this country. And if our police officers carry on behaving like that and helping them, they'll find support for them drops too. In a moment, the GB News pub will open. It'll be time for Talking Pints, and I'll be joined by music. Impresario, Pete Waterman. That time of the day, certainly my favourite time of the day, the GB News pub is fully open. It's Talking Pints. And I'm joined by music impresario, Pete Waterman. Pete, welcome. Cheers, thank you. Now, we all know you, Stock aching Waterman, these amazing, unbelievable number of successes that you had, hundreds of hit records. Unbelievable what you did. But what's really interesting... Of the jobs you did before before all of that? I mean, just run us through some of the jobs that you did when you were young. I was a grave digger. You grave digger? Yeah, not
5: for long, but I was a grave digger. I yeah. went down the pit. Um, I worked on the railway as a fireman, and I worked in the telecommunications industry as a, a, a technician.
0: What was it like working down the pit?
5: Well, it's a great story. This, I went down the pit, and I got to the bottom. I was at the time I was well overweight. And I uh, got to the bottom of the guy said, you're a bit of a big lad to be down here. I've got a job for you on top, making cement. So I actually only spent about an hour downstairs and then <laughs> I was on the top <laughs> making cement. And I went from about 17 and a half stone to about 11 stone in about eight weeks.
0: Don't think I've ever worked so hard in my life. It's dreadful. What, making cement? That, that was physically very hard work.
5: Yeah, I was mixing. You know, I got a big mixer. Yeah. It was called No Fines. In other words, there was no sand in it. You had to put like a coat in, like a... Um, a chocolate bar, and it was a way that water permeated through the concrete onto a membrane and went down
0: drains. And you worked at the railways for a bit. I did, yeah. And you are a sort of full-on railway nut, basically.
5: Uh, yeah, you could say that, yeah. Would have been, I think, would have been cheaper if I
0: did drugs, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've invested in all sorts of railways.
5: Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I've travelled by a train all my life. Yeah. Um, didn't drive till I was about 26, 27. I've commuted by tr- by train for, since 1972, 71. Yep. I still do three or four train journeys a week. I do not understand why people drive cars, although I have a very nice car and I sometimes have to drive it because it's the only place I can get. I, I I have used public transport all my life and and, and I've I've found it perfectly fit for purpose.
0: They- home for you, the West Midlands, obviously. That was, yeah.
5: I live in the northwest now.
0: But very much where... Well, this is even more relevant, right? Because right. I had the Conservative Member of Parliament, for Litchfield, sitting where you're sitting the other day, and we were talking about trains, and in particular, HS2, and the cost of it, and his argument was, Michael fabrican's argument was, well, actually, from Lichfield to London, it's only like an hour and 15 minutes anyway, that from Manchester to London, I think the fastest trains are two hours, six minutes, seven yeah, minutes, yeah, yeah. That, that actually, is it really worth spending 100, 150 billion quid? And he's the MP
5: for Litchfield, is he?
0: He's the MP for Litchfield, yeah.
5: Well, he ain't very bright, then, is he?
0: Well, you tell me, because I'm well, not convinced.
5: Well, OK. Uh, where's Coventry compared with Litchfield? Oh, Further south, right?
0: Yeah, 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 of course. Well,
5: I can tell you now that yep. Coventry, from Euston, is exactly one hour, 100 miles exactly, mm-hmm. Right. Crew on HS2 is fifty-eight minutes. Crews farther up north than Lichfield ever will be, by yeah, a long way.
0: Does saving ten minutes matter that much?
5: No, it's not saving ten minutes, Nigel. C- crew is yeah. currently one hour yes. and thirty-five minutes.
0: Oh, 35 minutes. Yeah. Sorry, it's yeah. going to save.
5: Yeah. It's going to save thirty-eight minutes. But more important, it moves. Co- it moves crew from the North Midlands. Mm-hmm. To the South Midlands. It puts it right
0: at the heart. So it'll drive more business to London?
5: No, it'll drive more business like me back to... I, listen, I, I I got this job because I could commute in under an hour. I didn't need to buy a house in London, so I came back. But I took my wealth back to the Midlands. Yeah. And when I when I really started this, what did I open my studios? In Manchester.
0: All right, so you're an HS2 enthusiast then? Yeah, absolutely. It's a big cost, isn't it?
5: No, It's cheap.
0: No, it's not. It's cheap. Well, how's it Come cheap? on, how
5: much has this pandemic cost us? And what have we got out of it? Well,
0: I know that. Nothing. Well, well I know that. We but haven't
5: I got anything that. out of it. But isn't Where's 20,000
0: jobs? Nigel, our problem Let's, is in... That uh, amount of money could be spent on infrastructure projects all over the United Kingdom.
5: No, it couldn't. It could not benefit... We cannot modernise the railway with, with patching it up. You've got places like Primrose Hill Tunnel. You've got Killsby Tunnel. These tunnels are so big and so restrictive, they stop
0: us. It, it is a bit Victorian, some of the systems. It's a it? yeah. complete I get Victorian. That. I get that, I get that. I just look at the massive cost of it. But, no, but anyway, you but let's are... let's talk a,
5: about the massive cost, right?
0: But, you know, are we, we, but, could, I could be 150 a, billion quid, yeah. OK,
5: but I was a, a, a director of, of Transport for the North, one of the first directors yep. on Transport for the North. I know how much subsidy the Treasury has to put into the Northwest to keep it afloat, OK? It's huge. Compared with what it has to put in... London and the South East. London and the South East is this amazing place which pays for most of us to live. Well, let's put a bit more into the North East, the North West, the Midlands, because then it will generate more.
0: If I it mean, did, if it did, if I really thought it would, I might change my mind. But I'll tell you what puts me off ever so slightly. The TGV. In France, all right? You know, I spent lots of time in France as an MEP, going to Strasbourg and all the rest of it. When I was first elected to the European Parliament, it was five hours from Paris to Strasbourg. By the time I left the European Parliament, it was two hours, 14 minutes. I mean, completely different. Yeah. Um, Bigger country, though. Yeah, no, no. Marseille was six hours from Paris, but with the TGV, it was three hours from Paris. And Lyon, correspondingly, again, much, much closer. And the experience in France was that a lot more businesses in Marseille headquartered in Paris than they had before. It drove business into Paris. Now, if it works the other way around here, okay. I get the point, but I'm, okay. but I'm we, not sure. We
5: have, ah, right, well, let's take Warrington, where I live. Yep. has a unique place. Unique. More people come into Warrington to work than going to Manchester or Liverpool. That's because Warrington has built a case around the nuclear industry. So if you look at Warrington, yeah. there's more people go in than go out and, and go for jobs.
0: And good roads. Yes. Around Warrington, the roads are... Right, you know, because they are good. there's a
5: great industry. Yeah. So yeah. it proves that if you do build it, which is why I worked so hard to get Crewe as the first you know, hub for
0: HS2, because yeah. it opens the whole of the North West, so North Wales... When this is completed, it'll stop in Birmingham, it'll yep. stop in Crewe, yep. and then... Manchester.
5: And then we hope... Liverpool and Warrington will come off on a spur.
0: And then there was the line that was going to go up to Leeds, wasn't there? The...
5: You know, Nigel, that's the problem. And i tell you why it's a problem. It's not a problem of the cost away. It it's a problem of the people that, that live in that part of the world that don't want it built, that can't see like we did in the North West, like Andy Burnham and, and, and the people in crew and Warrington and, and Liverpool. We see there's a massive benefit for, for bringing it there. When I was on the commission for the Treasury that we went round Britain looking at the value that we could get yeah. this, we found absolute apathy, and I mean apathy, in the East Midlands and Yorkshire. It was just, they didn't want to know. No. So if they don't want to know, you're not going to get it. <laughs> if you don't fight for it, you're not going to get it, are you?
0: Well, Pete, I have to say, your passion for this is, is it's real, it's very, very, well, very strong. Oh, it's true, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm still not totally convinced, but you've put the argument, and I'm, I'm very, very pleased to hear it. But when you were doing all these different jobs—the grave digging and cement making—and briefly going down the pit and all the rest of it—collecting records. This was this was clearly. I mean, were, were you kind of rock and roll was just really kicking off, I guess, in the late fifties? Or
5: well, I started collecting. I think. In truth, I remember like buying a Walrus um, radio with you know two earphones. I was about I was about I guess six or seven, eight. Got it for Christmas, and I could go in. You know. Into bed, and my mum didn't know this because she'd have died if she thought I was in bed listening to the radio. But well, I used to listen to American Forces Network, yep. Radio Luxembourg, and stations like that. Um, and I started to collect, you know, the records that you heard. Um, and they fascinated me. The cultural thing really fascinated me. And um, I was lucky enough that my, I had an aunt who lived in Leicestershire. Of course, the nuclear strike force in those days was at Bruntingthorpe and Upper Hayford, which were very much within my patch. And my mum and dad used to go to a pub at the end of the runway at Bruntingthorpe, and the American GIs used to come out and they used to bring the records from the jukebox and give them to my mum because they played skittles in the pub. Uh, and so I started collecting these American records, you know. And then, you know, you start doing parties because you've got these records that kids don't know. So you're in demand?
0: Yeah.
5: I get 10 bob and a, you know, a barrel, a barrel of beer. <laughs> you know, one of them uh, tanks What they were called bumper packs. The worst beer in the world, weren't they? Bloody awful. Was it Watney's or whatever? Oh, <laughs> oh, God, God. Family packs. <laughs> you know, you sit in the corner and play records, okay. you know, and I got 10 bob. Well, my dad was probably earning, I don't know, six, five, six, seven quid in the factory. I was getting 10 bob for playing records at the, you know, that I loved. So I thought, well,
0: there's got to be something in this. And when does the, re- when does the real revolution start? When about the Beatles. Is it the Beatles? Oh, yeah, without
5: question. I mean, that 60, night...
0: 60, 62, three? 62. Yep.
5: Yeah. 62. Yeah. You know, I, I was at their first gig as, as the Beatles. They'd been John Lennon and the Silver Beatles the night before. Yeah. They were on the back, way back from Hamburg to um, Liverpool, and they stopped in a... a...
0: So you are just there as a fan?
5: No. Yes, yeah, so I was there as a fan. Yeah. Um, I, I called in at the Matrix Ball, remember, Matrix Tools... They used to have a ballroom which was a social club and uh, they were on there on their way back and I'd never seen anything like them. I mean, I'd worked with lots of acts and seen lots of acts at that point. but you know, these four lads went on stage and Ringo Starr still wasn't with them at that point. And they just went on stage and went, one, two, three, four and I went, what? It was like, whoa, what is this? It was like, I guess like punk was. It was so energetic, so different and you know, they had Levi jeans on. Well, we didn't see Levi jeans in Coventry. I mean, you know, only Americans wore <laughs> Levi jeans. My God, they got Levi jeans on. You know, and this guitarist had a Jet Atkins Gretsch. It's like, wow, this guy's got a Gretsch, you know. They must be American. Couldn't understand them anyway because they taught, you know, from Liverpool. So it, it was like, but there were, it was just an impact. It was like, okay, yeah. this has given me goosebumps. Why is it giving me goosebumps? Because this is what I, I want to do, you know. This
0: is like. Oh, but it took off, didn't it?
5: Oh. And, you know, people forget, and you try, you know, I do lecture occasionally, just colleges. There was no social media. No. BBC didn't we had the home service and the light programme, you know. And within three weeks of me seeing them at the... And no Radio 1. No Radio 1. Within three, no pirate radio at all, only Radio Luxembourg. Uh, within three weeks, they played at the Nuneaton Co-op Hall. And it was packed. I mean, Packed. So between, just in three weeks, they'd gone from probably 40 people at the venue that I was at yeah. till 2,500. And, of course, then, within a month and a half, all the Daily Papers had picked up Beatlemania.
0: Amazing. And yeah. you decide, this is it? Yeah, this is it. I've got to be in music. Yeah, because you... you but how not... do you, as, as someone that not coming with any particular advantages to all of this, how do you go to where you got to in the 80s? I mean, how does all that happen? You Just decide to do it. Simple as that.
5: Yeah, because I can't read and write.
0: So, it's the other thing I was fascinated by... No,
5: I couldn't read or write, so I couldn't be told. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing was different. You know, I didn't know you, you couldn't do this. I didn't understand that there were barriers to this. I just never understood that. Because to me, there were no barriers. You know, when I, when I saw these bands, you know, the Beatles play, and they played things like Mr Moonlight and... Um, Hippy, hippie, shake. Well, I've got these records that I've been playing for months, you know. And it's like, well, they're doing what I do. They're, they're, they're obviously talented enough to do it on a guitar, but I've got the records. So I can make people as entertaining. So I didn't see that whole thing about uh, you can't do this because you've got to go to work at half past seven in the morning. Mm. It's like, no, 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 no I've got half past seven
0: That's yeah, fascinating.
5: But if I've got to get home for one o'clock, I'll get home.
0: And you finish up Stock your Waterman and you've got the lot, haven't you, you know, banana rama and all these big hits and how many top 10 hits did you oh god
5: 22 number ones i think yeah.
0: 22 number ones was it all just mass market easy uh, it was hard work was it was it good music or was it was it just commercial music still around
5: now so I, well, I only make commercial music yeah. i don't make music people to judge me by i don't that's not what i'm interested no. in.
0: they either like it or they don't
5: I, don't like, I listen i need their cash Yep. Pay me, in, pay me in cash, don't pay me in gold watches. This is... But like this Mozart, is. it's like, uh, don't, you won't offend me by giving me a fiver. OK, so if you don't want to review my records, that's fine. Just, you know... I always said to people that, that, that gave me all this grief, hang on, I walk down the street, kids walk up to me and say, when's the next Rama album, man? Yeah. In other words, yeah. when can I give you another fiver? <laughs> how many people are lucky enough to walk down the street and kids say, no, wouldn't you like a fiver? Yeah, oh, thank you very much.
0: It's amazing. And how have you found living with that kind of fame?
5: Easy, actually, Nigel. If you don't don't want it, you don't go out. You stay in.
0: Yeah.
5: When you go out, you're in the public. And domain, people want to torture you the whole time. And people want to torture. you, yeah. Then that's what you have got to do. That's what you get paid yeah. to do. Yeah. If you don't want to go out, I don't go out. You know, when I go out on the railway, people talk to me because they know that you know they've got an opinion about the railway. Not everything the railway does is perfect, but it does in the majority of cases. You know, we've just had this whole fiasco at the weekend where they're trying to save the planet. Well, we've been, you know, on the railway, we've been... Let's be honest, we've been penny-pinching. We've been, you know, recycling carriages for the last 75 years.
0: Are you a bit sceptical about net zero, then?
5: I'm sceptical about people that turn up in entourages, private jets, private yachts, and try and tell me (laughs) that they're here to save the planet. And, you know, I'm listening to the BBC about climate change and then they have a program about going to mars (laughs) you know and having private (laughs) flights around the earth you're going hang on a minute whoa wait a minute if we if we take it serious let's take it serious yeah but then we're too far along the line now of blurring the lines between what you can recycle and what is and what isn't proper in other words Big business can come in, in front, too many times, of practicalities. Mm. I mean, we do things on the railway now. Ten years ago, we would have never thought about
0: doing. Well, who would have known? Who would have known that getting Pete Waterman in, we get a lecture about railways, we'd be told all about the Beatles in the early days, and a guy who's achieved that level of success, who, as he says, couldn't read and write properly. Amazing. Pete Waterman, thank you for joining me here on Talking Pints. Bruce. Cheers. Cheers. Well, that was great. It's the end of the show. It's now Barrage the Farage, where you send in your questions that I don't get any chance to see beforehand. So, fingers crossed, and here goes. Jackie asks me, if the GPs go on strike, will anybody even notice? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a very good question. Look, I'm, I'm really... What's disappointing, and I've made this point more than once here, is that GPs were the most respected members of our local communities. We all looked up to the GP. They were the people that came to visit the house when your kids were ill or your dad was ill or whatever it was. Um, And I feel they've withdrawn from society. I worry that the British Medical Association now sound more more like a trade union. Um, And I think we're starting to lose some respect for GPs, and that is not a good thing. Clive asks me... Oh, here we go. If Trump got the nomination to stand again, would you cross the pond and support him? Look, I like Donald Trump. I think he stands for the right things. I think in terms of recognising the threat that China poses to the rest of us. He was way ahead of the game and has woken people up. And I think, frankly, you know, when it comes to the whole cancel culture, woke agenda, Trump believes in free speech, I believe in free speech. Some people don't like his style. He's a bit of a brash New Yorker, but I've always supported him. And, yes, I always will. Gary asks me... No, Clive asks me. No, I've done that one. Camilla asks me. If you could choose any job in the world, what would it be? I think having a pint with Pete Waterman actually isn't too bad, frankly. I think it's pretty good. I'm pretty happy with it. Right, I've got... uh, No, that's it. We're done. We're over. Pete, thanks ever so much. Nigel, thank you. For coming in. It's been terrific. Really, really interesting. Uh, Been a big day again in the English Channel. We'll get the final numbers. We were absolutely right yesterday telling you what it would be. 800 or so it'll be again today. It's a big problem for this government.